0: I'm Joe Turner, and this is City Manager Unfiltered, a podcast by a city manager for city managers and other public sector executives. Super geeked about this show. I'm jacked. I'm pumped up. I have a very special guest. His name is Daniel Rosemont. He is the former city manager for Hallandale Beach, Florida. He was wrongfully terminated a few years back, back in 2016. He subsequently filed a wrongful termination lawsuit and would end up winning a $4.4 million judgment. However, he has yet to collect on it because the city is appealing that uh, verdict. He wrote the book, Death of the Public Servant. Uh, I've read it twice. It's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it if you haven't picked it up yet. But he is the author of Death of the Public Servant. And we're going to talk about his book here today. This is part one called Death of the Public Servant. Part two will be uh, a detailed look at his lawsuit, the legal case. That will be called Revenge of the Public Servant. And then we're going to kick out a part three, because there's so much to cover that we're going to go over some interesting stuff. We're going to go over some stuff that's just going to blow your mind with respect to our profession. And that is called Betrayal of the Public Servant. Part three, Betrayal of the Public Servant. Daniel, I'm so glad to have you on the show. I've been wanting to do this interview with you for a while now. Tell us about yourself. Introduce yourself to
1: the audience. Thank you Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been following your your content uh, for a while now, and as you and I had talked offline, our thought processes have really crossed paths uh, for a while, and it's eerie because I've been watching uh your LinkedIn posts and some of your your content material that you've posted, and you and I and I got to tell the audience this the story about how we actually connected. You know, you posted something that was really almost like taken out of one of the chapters in the book and I just felt like I had to reach out cuz that had been like the third time that that had happened and I just <laughs> felt like okay this is this is now bizarre in terms of how how parallel you know our thought process had been um but anyway it's great to be on your your podcast I really appreciate what you're doing man for the industry and for just being the voice that a lot of people that have walked the halls of city hall as a, um, as a municipal executive, don't uh, don't have. So a little bit about me. I'm a former municipal executive, been in the business for upwards of 30 years, cover kind of the ins and outs of my start in the book. But uh, suffice it to say, the culmination of that career was about seven years ago when I was with the city of, of Hallandale Beach and I became city manager after being a deputy. And it ended horrifically. And, and horrific is a is not an, an exaggeration. An yeah, it's an understatement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I I was forced to to have a career pivot in 2018. As a matter of fact, I got I to gotta shout out our organization because just yesterday, uh, July 31st, we celebrated five years of our organization and nonprofit that I started. you talking about the East to West. West Corporation? Yep. Yeah. East West. Yep. Yeah. So we started July 31st, 2018 in California, your home state, as a, as yeah. a, as a matter of fact. Yep. Yes, sir. Um, and You've been listening to the podcast, right? Yes, so. <laughs> yes sir. Yes, sir. Um, so we, we started uh, really out of kind of not having any other options because I literally had no doors uh, open to me. I had nowhere else to turn and it was really the epitome of a, of a Hail Mary pass. You know, I just leveraged my past experience in the community uh, development, affordable housing space. And, and I said, okay, I'm gonna go for it because I really don't have any other options. And it was really one of those moments where you say, okay, this has got to work because I got nothing else. I got no other cards to play. I got no other options. When you reach a certain age, it's really difficult to start anew. Um, yeah, you know, if you're if you're 25 or if you're 30, it's pretty customary to kind of have a career pivot or start a new business, and you know, you kind of figure, okay, if it doesn't work out, I can, I can get a job somewhere else. But you know, once you hit the uh, AARP age of 50, <laughs> <laughs> once you hit that once you hit that plateau you know it's not as simple you know you don't you that's don't right. get drafted you don't get drafted you know to use a sports vernacular you don't get drafted yeah. once you you not know a you upside, right? not, not a lot of upside right not, not a lot of upside to you not a lot of tread the tires when you get that age right that's no. least that's what they think
0: right you know <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but i still have i still have a passion to work i still have a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience under my belt that that i really felt like okay i want to do something meaningful but i want to do it for myself. I want to do it differently in a sense that I didn't want to be at the behest of lawmakers, which was kind of what got me here. You know, I wanted to do something where I could control the environment a little bit more and not put myself or my family through the horrors of of what we went through. Stuff that we're still, as a matter of fact, you know, dealing with. with, Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think a lot of people think, oh, there's a book out. He won a settlement game over. We're, we're, you know I mean? It's like, that's not the case at all. Right, Daniel, we're going to get not, into some of those details here in this, uh, in this episode. You know, this has been an ongoing battle. And you know, it's, it's crazy. I was I was sitting down prepping for this interview. And I was like, you know, wow, this whole thing for Daniel started really in 2016. Here we are in 2023. And the man has had, you know, seven years of his life being dragged through this whole ordeal. And um, yeah, we're going to get into that. I've spent so much time I've read your book twice and I wanted I wanted Thank to be prep for this, yeah, I wanted to be prepped for this interview for a few reasons. One is I just want my guests to know that I put a hundred percent into what I'm doing here. I think you deserve that. You know, you put a book out here and, and it's like, it's it's incumbent upon me to show respect to you as the guest and be prepared. Uh, I just think that's just a matter of, you know, work ethic and in your, in your belief systems and so forth. But the other thing too, Daniel, and this is the first interview, I really kind of had some nerves or been a little nervous about. And, and why I say that is because your ordeal and the book that you, that basically goes over this experience, it's so important, and it's such a eye-opening experience, I think, for all the city managers and all the aspiring public sector executives in the profession that were to read. I want to do it do justice, you know? Let, let's not get it twisted. This isn't unicorns and rainbows. You know, I've, I've been debating how to start this interview. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with this. Okay, I want to read a brief passage from your book. I think it's a great way to start this interview because it somewhat softens the dark realities of this profession with a little bit of humor. And I think every city manager needs to have at least a small piece of them that is amused by the dark humor. And uh, you, you write uh, you write about your being tapped to become the city manager at Hall- Hallandale Beach, right? So we're going we're to start there. And you say, Great. quote, most people starting a new job will experience what is referred to as a honeymoon period. I had no such honeymoon period. In fact, I would describe my transition from deputy city manager to city manager as a shotgun wedding, immediately followed by an intense marriage counseling. (laughs) (laughs) And then I would go on to add to that passage by stating that the bitter, nasty, expensive divorce would soon follow, right?
1: (laughs) Yes, with a long, drawn-out custody battle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, here we are, man. It's uh, War of the Roses here. I don't read book forwards very often. I very seldom read the forward to a book. I think they're usually kind of boring or whatever. I was reading yours and I'm like, wow, this is going to be a different animal because when I read this, I'm going to read this other passage, okay? It says, some endings while having the appearance of being happy possess bittersweet elements. And this is where we land in the juxtaposition between a desired reality and the actual one. And I was like, Oh, brother, we're going to be on for a ride here because this isn't (laughs) this isn't you uh, trying to say, hey, everyone go in to be a city manager. It's all good. The water's the water's fine. I mean, I I was reading your book and I'm like, man, there's a lot of glimmers of optimism in in some parts, but they're often drowned out by the dark clouds of your reality. Right. Why don't you just kind of give me a a general vibe of where you're at right now with the profession? And because you had to also and I'm sorry to monopolize the, the conversation, but I mean, I just wrote down so many notes here. And you're talking about governing bodies here. Right. You say Rather than exercising deference to the subject matter or technical experts, the order of the day seems to focus on advancing a short-sighted political agenda in a manner that decimates the credibility of the professional manager. Yep. So what is the state of the profession right now, in your opinion, as far as city management? Because I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. Do you think people should be getting in the city management business?
1: You know, I, I'm not one to... Kind of blow the roof off of an institution. It's almost like uh, to give you an analogy, it's somebody who's going through a divorce who you know poo-poo's on marriage. That's right. that's not me. But I will tell you that you, if you're going to go into it, you know the objective of my writing the book is thinking about the twenty-somethings that are thinking about going into the profession who have no real clue about what it's like, who think, you know, the corner office is great. I'm going to have this six-figure salary. I'm going to have, you know, all of this glitz and glamour. Yep,
0: sounds sexy. And really,
1: it sounds sexy. It sounds appealing. Who wouldn't want to go into it, right? You know, it's a very altruistic profession, very noble. And really, one of the things that wasn't being said, it wasn't being taught, was the reality. I wouldn't even call it the dark side. It's the reality. And so it's important that when people are going to go into something, that they be fully aware of what they're getting into. And that's really what the book is intended to be. You know, the way I, I couch the book is it's it's part academia, but part, you know, kind of me telling my own story. So yes, my story is in some cases unique and other cases very, very common uh, to experiences that others have gone through. But I attempt to provide, you know, the history of the profession with kind of some of the things that happen in the profession that a lot of people don't want to talk about. They don't want to talk about this idea of, you know, elected officials that are the governing body making decisions and really dictating the people that have been in the profession, who've studied, who have gotten the the technical experience and really cut their teeth on it to have some, you know, some clown who just got elected, who was a plumber or who was, you know, something else who all of a sudden now is dictating the the CEO of a municipal organization. Right. And that part is we don't often talk about, at least when I went to, to school and got my public administration master's, I was never given that insight. I was never given a book to read that would give me the realities of that. And so I felt compelled to write about it and to talk truthfully. And And I was very careful not to be, to have a tone of, you know, because I'm mad then then I'm gonna poo-poo on the entire profession. Right. I I right. wanted to give a very candid but also neutral representation of the profession. So to answer your question, I still believe that it's important. And if you if you read the book through the end, one of the things that I really have to promote is this concept of, of greater civic engagement. Because yes. most of our 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 residents are not involved. And because they're not involved, you've got these elected clowns who make these kinds of decisions that affect the constituency. Yeah. And and that's the part that to me is the most compelling. People have to, they they have to wake up, they have to understand what's going on in their local governments. Everybody's so consumed with what happens at in, in Washington, D.C. when in reality that's so far removed from the everyday realities that You need to really get involved. You need to really pay attention to who your governing bodies are, the decisions that they're making. This ordeal, my ordeal, I haven't seen the final tally in terms of what defense counsel's legal fees have been, but what, just to give your viewers or your your listeners a a comparison, my settlement, according to my employment agreement, was $92,000, 2016. The city of Hallandale Beach was paying more for office supplies than the cost of my settlement. The, the yeah. open item budget for office supplies was greater than $92,000. So yeah. that tells you the ridiculous nature of the decisions that many of the elected officials are making. Because in, in, a, in, a, in a real practical world, private sector, they don't make decisions like that. They're like, look, what's the bottom line? Just pay the person what they're due and move on. Why well, are we going to do this?
0: there's different accountability metrics, right? Uh, Daniel, Absolutely. Because uh, in the, in the private sector, they have to answer to the shareholders or they're the owners themselves making those decisions. And when in this environment, you have the elected officials who are basically playing with the taxpayers money, right? They're Correct. They're, it, doesn't, it doesn't sting like that. And that's what I talked about in episode two on uh, negotiation of contracts. You got to remember they're playing with house money. House they don't money. have any risk or skin in the game, right? That's right. We're, we're, we're the ones that bear all the risk as city managers. It's, it's very frustrating. Daniel, When you talk about this book, Death of the Public Servant, I wanted to ask you, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this or not, but I wanted you to maybe elaborate. Is the title Death of the Public Servant versus Death of a Public Servant, was that a conscious decision, the the and the a? Because when I was reading the book, it kind of struck me as you made a conscious decision to use that that little subtle tweak in the language, because this is a intensely personal autobiographical story. But you're not saying death of a public servant as in myself, you're saying death of the public servant. Can you speak to what went into that title?
1: Absolutely. an interesting catch on your part, because my editor and I went back and forth on that through several emails, and I stuck to the, number one, because I knew it was going to be much more of an attention-grabbing title. That subtle word difference was going to really draw in potential readers of the book. It speaks to a broader umbrella or a broader net on the industry as a whole. The term public servant is synonymous with a lot of different roles in the public arena. And so if you get into the book early on, I I describe what I'm specifically talking about the role of a city manager. The use of the word was intentional for that purpose, but it was not necessarily intended to be a catch-all to say that this is what it's like in every single city manager or executive municipal executive experience even though i will say that since you you shouted me out initially on your podcast and on your linkedin so many people that have bought the book who have read it have sent me notes saying man i'm so sorry for the experience you went through and i went through a similar experience and i'm when i read your story it just brought back tremendous memories. And I'm so glad that you, you wrote the book, those notes for those, uh, listeners that, that the individuals that wrote me those notes, those things were super, super validating to me because it told me that what I wrote about was not just me venting. It was really me exercising an expression that many people in the, in the profession felt or had experienced, but had never expressed. So, I really felt like I was expressing my story, but I was also expressing elements of our, other our people's story. stories. Or yeah. Our story,
0: right? Yeah. It, yeah. It, that's, you know, that's, and it's interesting you say that because that's how I felt with my LinkedIn posting and, and whatnot. It's like I've had so many people uh, write me and say, man, I've, I've gone through something similar. Or, Thank you for saying that. I know I'm repeating myself now because I've, I've said this in multiple episodes of the podcast, but it is, re- it is refreshing and validating to have people say that. And, you know, when I was going through your book, Daniel, I had so many roller coaster emotions or f- or feelings, right? And one was this deja vu sense that we just talked about, right? I mean, there were times, Daniel, when I'm reading your book and I'm like, "Did I did I write this book?" <laughs> and, and I know I didn't write it. And I'm like, "Did I did I plagiarize Daniel Rosemont on my LinkedIn?" Because I feel like I wrote almost verbatim, word for word, on several of these passages, as you alluded to, right? So there was yeah. this amazing sense of deja vu, like, man. I'm connected to this person or he gets me and I think every city manager or public sector executive who reads this book is going to say, you know what? I know exactly where this man is coming from, what he uh-huh. means uh-huh. And you know we talked a little bit before uh, I want to bring this up. I think that I think that your book should be required reading for every MPA student in in this country and I don't know uh, I don't know what kind of conversations anyone's ever reached out to you or not Daniel, but I, I have some professors who follow me. I'm going to give you a shout out and a plug. I think every professor who's in the or every MPA program should be including this book in the curriculum because students need a real-world practitioner's perspective on this business. And no disrespect to professors, but a lot of the professors who teach MPA stuff, they haven't necessarily been in the game or they haven't been Correct. in the game in a long time. And these students need to get the real genuine article treatment of what, what it's like to be a city manager. And you encapsulate so much in this book.
1: Have any professors that by chance ever contacted you about your experience? Well, one of the one of the endorsements was one of my former MPA professors, Dr. Ganapati. So shout out to him. Um he's he's was my first kind of test read of rough draft of the manuscript. And he was the one that told me, he goes, Daniel, you gotta you gotta publish this thing because a lot of students don't get. This perspective. They'll get the perspective of an elected official, a governor or a mayor or something like that, but never from that pr- practitioner's perspective. And he says, the way that you write, the way that you talk about the story is so fresh and so real, so real, real, and so tangible because it's not just esoteric concepts. These are, you know, day to day things that you deal with as a municipal executive and you provide examples of what you went through. And he says, I think that that's going to be so valuable. So back to your point, I had heard that from several other people. So I started the process of getting the book reviewed through the Public Administration uh, Review Journal, which is the first step. We're hoping to hear back um, now in September. The process takes about a year. So as soon as it was published, I reached out to the the professor that oversees that portion of it. I got an endorsement from another uh, professional colleague, shout out to Russell Muniz, the town of Southwest Ranches. And so he wrote the recommendation and then I submitted that. And so we now have to wait for their process to uh, be completed. So once that happens, it'll be much easier once it's um, recommended or an established publication by PAR, then other professors can can certainly recommend or encourage their their students to read it. But I agree with you. I think it's it's something that as I was an MPA student myself, I never got anything like that to, to right. read or we were never encouraged to, you know, to have anything like that. And and so I it mean, was again le-
0: Daniel, I mean leadership's important, right? I get it. You know, organizational behavior, all that stuff. But I mean, we also need some real world Glimpses into the profession when you're a student too, and I think we're doing a big disservice a lot to our students by not giving them this real world perspective. And I've read Cheryl Schooley's book, which is a great book, uh, "Greedy Bastards," but I don't think in, there's any other book out there right now that encapsulates, summarizes, gives you the true sense of being in the profession like your book does. And thank I just you, think it's a, Yeah, it's it's an amazing read. We're gonna come back thank to you. a little bit more on that, but I want to kind of get into a little bit more of the meat of what transpired. And so the audience can kind of get, what's the story with Daniel, right? And, and I'm going to give you a little quick summary and you can jump in and, and correct or add anything to it that you want. Got it. So you get tapped to be the city manager of Hallandale Beach in October of 2015. This is a 3-2 vote and we're going to come back to that. So you get you get tapped on a 3-2 vote. To replace uh, Renee Miller, she was uh, leaving to go be a, a, a mother. She had wanted to raise her family, and she was going to have a very stressful profession. And And you are basically tapped to be her successor. So you get selected on a 3-2 vote, and then you become the actual city manager in reality in January of 2016. You fast forward. There's an election in uh, November of 2016. We all know there was an election, right? We talked about <laughs> You couldn't have missed it if you were alive. Yeah. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, no late November 28th, 29th uh, is actually that, you know, there's two days there. That's important. But the 29th, you basically get informed that you are being terminated and then you have to go into a uh, an appeal process, a hearing process in December. So basically you are in this job for less than a year and you're wrongfully terminated. We're going to get into that in a little bit. Wow. I mean, that's kind of where we stand, right? And then you have this one year experience and here's impacted the next seven years of your life with the lawsuit and the financial fallout and so forth and so on, right? Is there anything you want to add to that little summary there? You think that kind of gets people up to speed? Because we're going to dig into the nitty gritty, but I mean...
1: Yeah, it gets people up to speed. The only thing I would say is, you know, being a city manager in in a city like Hallandale Beach, it's it's the equivalent of dog years. So one year is is like seven. <laughs> so I will tell you fair that. Point, even, fair point. Even though it's it's on the calendar, it's one year. It, it, man, I tell you, all these gray hairs that, that the view that the listeners can't see, it's not because of my wife or my kids. It's it's really because of everything that I've gone through in that role and and others that have experienced being in a tumultuous city can appreciate the the stress that it puts on you it really does you know you you can't measure it just in in terms of uh, calendar days it really is yeah. differently
0: and speaking of your wife and kids we're going to come back to them because i know they've been a huge tremendous uh, support for you and you guys are have gone through this battle as a family and you're fighting together and we're going to come back to that but I got to be real, Daniel, right? This is, I, I'm an advocate for the profession. I'm a fan of yours, but I can't just throw you nothing but softballs, right? So, you got it. What What the hell were you thinking, brother, going into this uh, job with a 3 2 vote? You had an election coming up. Uh, you had this guy, this mayor, Keith London, man. This guy yeah. is, uh, I'm gonna say it, he's a scumbag. It looks like from everything I've seen. I've done some even some reading outside of this book and prep and whatnot. I'll just mention two words: anal bleaching. You can look it up yourself. Okay, <laughs> this guy is an. You know, you talk about elected clowns. This guy is a clown. Uh, not on the not on the commission anymore. But you know, you got this three two vote. You have a investigation into Lynn Whitfield, right? That's going mm-hmm. on. That's kind of maybe a cloud or whatever like it. What were you thinking, bro? What were you thinking about that? You just, you put you know, the pedal to the metal and said, I want that first title and I'm going I'm damn the torpedoes. We're just going to go and get it. Right.
1: Let me tell you, it's, it's a, it's a fair question. And, and it's, um, you know, to, to use the baseball analogy, it's, it's kind of a, um, you know, high and tight pitch, right? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> real high, real tight, real, real high and real tight. I, I knew that it was an uphill battle. Number one, it, part of my personality to not, take the easy road when i was reflecting on everything that i had gone through i had a lot of moments of reflection during this this you know the early time in 2017 but i thought about all of the past jobs that i had it seemed like i was always going into a role where there was some adversity some negativity some rough terrain that i had to traverse so it was almost like okay this is consistent with who Daniel Roseman has been in his entire career. I've always, I've always kind of either intentionally or unintentionally gravitated toward roles that had challenges associated to them. That's number one. Number two, the way that I'm wired, it's like, let's go. All right. Yeah. You don't yep. like me now, but guess what? I'm gonna, make, you I'm gonna make it, I'm gonna prove yeah. you wrong. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm gonna turn the corner. And that's just part of what drives me is if it was easy. I almost wouldn't be motivated by it. So I was thinking that it was also part of the discussions that I had had with a couple of the elected officials, knowing that the dais was was divided, and it, and it wasn't divided just because of the vote from me. When you look at their track record as a council, they had always been divided on virtually every, every single issue. So I also right. looked at it and saying, well, this is not personal. They're just a dysfunctional group of elected officials. So I just went in there, I said, I'm going to be professional, I'm going to work my butt off, and we're going to get stuff done, and we're going to continue the work that Renee Miller had started in terms of her administration. And it was really that type of motivation that I said, we're we're going to get this thing done and we're going to get to a point where the organization is going to be in a better place by the time that my journey in that. Certainly, I didn't expect that it was going to be a short period of time because I had a conversation with Mayor Cooper at the time, and she asked me. I never forget the conversation. I was in at a conference in Seattle, and um, she says, "You know, if we support you, are you going to just be here for a couple of years, and then you're just going to leave and go do something better, or can we expect that you're going to be here for the long haul?" And I said, "Mayor, I'm committed for the long haul because we had a parks bond program. We had." Significant capital improvements, I mean there was a lot of stuff going on in the city at that time, and the continuity was really, really important for not only the health of the organization but just in terms of the overall development that was going on in the city right. and so she she asked me to give her a verbal commitment that I was not going to jump ship and take you know some other job someplace else and i and I told her and i my wife and I had talked about that, and I said, you know this is going to be A rough go at it, but we're committed for the long haul.
0: Yeah. When, uh, when, when Lazaro and London voted against your selection as city manager back in 2015, it was a three, two vote. Mm-hmm. They in public were saying that the reason they didn't want to support you was that they want to do a national recruitment. It wasn't necessarily an indictment on you per se, at least publicly. Did you get right. the sense that that was a legitimate philosophical difference between the council and not take that personal? And that was like, oh, okay, I, I get that they want to have a national recruitment. It's not, it's not a reflection on me per se. It's just a process. Did you, is that where you were at the time?
1: No when you and remember I was for the for the listeners, I had been a deputy city manager for two and a half years prior to that point, so I had been seeing kind of where the the split in terms of the dais had been right. on virtually every issue. There was some inconsistencies with regard to how those two individuals specifically operated, and so that whole desire for a national search was not necessarily their consistent pattern because in other cases if they if there was a candidate that they wanted then they wanted to bifurcate the process. So yeah. it was not necessarily them wanting to have good business being done. They just it was a it was a power struggle. They wanted whatever, their way. Whatever
0: it took to get their way, right? Yeah exactly. it was they wanted their way.
1: millions and malleable yeah right, yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. So they yeah. they would find an alternative method to be able to to push back on something that the mayor and the other two um, the voting block was 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 split three to two. And so that anytime that there was something that one side wanted, then they would push back with, well, we we need to do it in this case, a national right. search. So that's what it was.
0: so there's another there's another element to your getting hired uh, as a city manager that to me, I think merits a little bit more explanation or detail because I think this was also something that really kind of caught me when I was reading it. So Lynn Whitfield is the city attorney at the time. And she has filed a complaint. I'll let you kind of summarize that. You were brought into this process by the investigation, or the investigator, to basically testify or give some some evidence or whatever about, about her case. And you had some things in there that were not so flattering about Mayor Keith London. In fact, vice, uh, He was the vice mayor at that vice, time. Bi- vice mayor, mm-hmm. excuse me, mm-hmm. b- vice mayor. And basically you were, you alleged, and I believe you, that he basically asked you to help him circumvent the Florida transparency laws with respect to counting votes of other council members. Mm-hmm. And you'd reported that in this investigation. So this report, this investigation was dropped in the public domain about a month after you assumed the role of city manager. So I think like in February of 2016. So Correct. when you're going through this process, this investigation, were you expecting this report to be public? Were you expecting it to come out a month after you took the job. Can you walk me through what was the the process there? Because that was a huge, like, wow, this is really a bomb that's going off in my lap right now, I would think, moment.
1: It was one of the many bombs that was going off in my lap at the <laughs> moment. But um, no, for, for for context, Lynn's investigation actually started back in 2015. She filed the complaint in 2015 as a hostile work environment. And, and so that the listeners understand and those that are familiar with Hallandale Beach know that there was a lot of contention specifically between Keith London and Mayor Jory Cooper. And that that contention goes back to an election that was back in 2012, where I think they both ran for mayor and, and there was a lot of mudslinging on the part of Keith London toward ma- the mayor and, and even delved into some personal uh, family matters that was really inappropriate. When Lynn Whitfield filed her complaint, I was one of two deputies at the time. The issue really was, Joe, that the commission had launched this independent investigation and they said anyone who has any evidence or experience regarding Keith London's behavior specific to discriminatory practices is encouraged to come forward and speak up. And I remember us in the manager's office, Renee was the manager at the time, having this conversation about, you know, we all knew that he was a bully. We all knew that he really abused staff members, was really disrespectful. He was just, you know, just an awful, awful individual.
0: And and, and-, and, I, and I and I will interject there because even after this whole episode in 2015, 16, you're long gone. You can read articles and see him even engaging that behavior, even up until he left office. Essentially, correct. Or correct. I mean, he had a pattern he, of behavior.
1: He, he had a pattern of behavior, and it wasn't limited to just city staff. I mean, this is an individual. I remember there was one meeting where there was an elderly resident who came to talk about parks, and and this individual from the dais berated this person so much so that it was an embarrassing behavior pattern on somebody, you know, just two adults you know, we're, we're, yeah. we're taught as kids, you know, you respect your elders. And, and even yeah. if you disagree with the person, you know, you still are respectful. And the way that he would just treat people from the day, it was literally the the epitome of a bully pulpit, right? Well, so, and, not,
0: and not not even just uh, residents, but even his own colleagues on, on the commission, right? Correct. I mean, I, like I said before, he, you know, the funny part is he, the whole anal bleaching thing, which I'll let someone, you know, let people look up on their own. That was actually Towards one of the, the female council members who voted to get rid of you, who they were allies, yes. and I will maybe get in that a little bit later. But I also read an article that he referred to another commissioner as a migrant worker, and basically yeah. was impugning that person, it was like completely you know bo- you know below the belt and disrespectful. And um, it's it's I'll, I'll, who he I'll is, man. It. He's a scu- I'll say it. He's a scumbag. I'll say it. I don't care. It's it's um,
1: it's who he it's who he is. You know. So that was the context of what we were dealing person. with. Yeah, very nasty person. Very nasty person. And so what was happening was. And, and I have to and I have to put this in context because it's a very fair question, you know, in terms of the motivation behind testifying. My testimony was part of Lynn Whitfield's investigation. I struggled as to whether or not I wanted to participate in the investigation because as every
0: as every normal human being would, because yeah. there's consequences of standing up and doing the right thing in this business.
1: But you know what man, what what came to mind, I remember a conversation between my dad and my brother when I was a kid and it was this this guy who was a bully and I was in in junior high. And I remember my my dad and my brother telling me, look, you know, you got to stand up to bullies. You can't let yep. them take your lunch money. It's 100%. like you may get your te- you, you may get your teeth knocked in, but you got to fight because if you don't fight, they they're always going to take your lunch money. And so I remember my brother telling me one time, he says, you know, the, the key is if you're going to get into a fight, you swing first, <laughs> you know, you yep. take the first swing and make sure that you land a, a, a solid punch. Right. So in my mind, I, I didn't have the intention of being the aggressor, but I also felt like, okay, so if I don't stand up and say something, then who, who will, what's interesting was that in, in my investigation, the investigators asked me if I had ever observed commissioner London. Be uh, disrespectful or look at people uh, differently because of their race or their gender. And I said, no, I think he's an equal opportunity butthole. I said, he treats everybody like crap. <laughs> like, it didn't matter. you know, black, white, gray in between, he treated everybody like crap. And so the issue toward the end of the investigation, they asked me, so have you ever um, seen him do anything inappropriate? You know, And I said, well, There was this time, and this was during the time that Renee Miller was on maternity leave, and she had left me. She didn't leave me um, in charge, but I was the director of the CRA. So during a CRA meeting, so the the structure in the city of Hallandale Beach was that the commission was also the CRA board.
0: Uh, and can you oh. tell them, the, the audience what CRA stands for? for sure, it's the,
1: the okay. Community Redevelopment Agency. So okay. um, some organizations have uh, those redevelopment agencies, and they have a redevelopment area. So the city of Orlando Beach has such an area. In this case, the city commission, the same governing body, was the body that um, also oversaw the policy making and and the budget for the CRA. It was after a CRA meeting that he says, hey, I want to have breakfast with you. And that particular CRA meeting went to like 1230 in the morning. And I'm, I'm thinking, I texted him that night. And I'm thinking, okay, we can reschedule because it was already late and I was going to have to be yeah. up super early. And he's like, nope, I'll see you at 730. And I was like, great. <laughs> so <laughs> that next morning I was there and that's when the conversations happened about him wanting me to bring him information from another Commissioner, the only other Af- the only African American commissioner on the dais, and so the the context of the conversation amounted to me being what those in the DEA or the Drug Enforcement Agencies refer to as a mule. You know, you have right. somebody who is not making the drugs or selling the drugs, or just moving the merchandise from one point to the other. So he wanted me to just move information between right. this other commissioner and him because he wanted to essentially control the board. And so he did that twice. He did that at that breakfast meeting. And then he did it a second time during a conversation and my family and I are on our way to Disney and he calls me and he's like, Hey, deputy city manager, Rosemond, you know, remember our conversation and, you know, remember that. I need to know what's going on in the, yeah. in the, in the Northwest district. And, and hint, hint. <laughs> yeah. so I was like, um, okay, I heard you. And I didn't say yay or nay. I just acknowledged that he said that. Yeah. And so that was my testimony that I shared that the investigators looked at me and says, well, you know, that that is akin to violating uh, the sunshine law. And I'm like, yeah, that may be, but you know, it was a private you- conversation. How do you prove that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what came out in the report. And how they wrote it, it was like, you know, if in fact the conversation happened as as this um, individual stated it did, that would be a violation of the Florida Sunshine Law. So that statement was in the executive summary, which dropped February of 2016, about a month after I had been appointed city manager officially. So you had to
0: know that that bomb was going to drop at some point after. You oh, made, yeah, I, you I, kn- I knew because
1: I had read the draft from the yeah. uh, from the the, uh, <laughs> the investigator. So, I mean, I was like, OK, well, <laughs> strap on your seatbelt because it's going to it's going to get even it's get bumpy. Yeah, exactly.
0: You know, but,
1: but, you know, again, truth was on my side. And I having that that kind of mindset of, you know what? All right. I needed to say something. I spoke honestly because I I said to the investigator, I've never seen him be disparaging to people of color or females specifically. But there was this one incident, and it was my testimony was in response to a specific question. It wasn't like me trying to fabricate information. My participation in the investigation was really part of leadership, and I'm going to tell you why. There were many department directors who would often complain to Renee and to the other staff in the city manager's office about Keith London's bully behavior. Many of those individuals chose not to participate in the investigation. They punked out, right? plain and simple. They,
0: saved they, their, they, they wanted
1: to save their hide. They wanted to save, to save their hide. They would always complain, and, and, and Renee would even say, say to them, folks, this is your chance. If, in fact, he has said something to you that you feel is inappropriate, participate in the investigation. We're not going to tell you what to say. The investigators are independently hired. Whatever they ask you, you respond honestly. So that was protected process. So you didn't have to fear that it was going to get back to him necessarily, right. even though the report provided Eventually, the, the yeah, actual testimony. Yeah, yeah. But but it was really, for me, it was part of leadership because I was a deputy at the time. And if I didn't participate, even having my own experiences with this individual, then how could we expect others to want to come forward? So for me, it was part of my leadership.
0: And you know, I want to talk about something that you just mentioned a few times, and I really want to praise you for it. You know, I can say uh, politically incorrect things. Uh, You know, I'm not afraid to touch the third rail and talk on some taboo topics. Right, Daniel? And, And I will tell you that as a white manager, I found it refreshing that when I read your book, it wasn't littered with, oh, this, I'm being attacked because of the color of my skin or my background or anything like that. And, you know, you had every opportunity, you were dragged through the coals. You had every opportunity to pile on and say, you know what, this son of a bitch is a racist. He's a bigot, whatever. And it could have been, he said, she said, and you didn't do that. And I think that speaks to your character. And the, and and the reason why I bring this up, Daniel, is because I know that when I was reading your book, I could tell that your faith was very important to you. It, it was You didn't beat the reader over the head with it and say, look at me, I'm a Christian or I go to church every Sunday or anything like that. But I could read it and I could sense that your faith, your belief in God is a very strong part of your life. It's a very strong part, component of how your family operates, uh, you and your wife. Uh, can you speak to what impact the, your faith has had not only on your leadership style, but also getting you through this entire episode or this ordeal that you're actually still going through
1: at, at the moment. Correct. And, and thank you for, for the opportunity to, you know, to, to talk about that. And and that was, even that was a, an intentional, when you asked me earlier about the the word in the title of the book, the right. B versus A, when I was writing the, the manuscript, it was one of those um, moments of, you know, kind of a fork in the road. Do I, do I delve into this? Because when you're shopping for publishers, the first thing they want to ask you is, you know, what, what, who's your target audience? What genre is the book going to be? And I didn't want it to necessarily be a Christian audience book right. because the, the elements, as you pointed out at the beginning of this podcast, is a wide range of of topics that I wanted to cover, but I also wanted to make it personal. And so to make it personal. I couldn't talk about one aspect of who I am without really talking about another aspect of who I am. And, and and my faith, you know, my relationship with Jesus is not something that is something that I put on as an afterthought or only on Sundays. It is who I am. And so I had to re- really talk about it in the sense of it's because of that faith in a person that has kept me sane, number one, and and has really dictated how I've handled not only the writing of the book and how I retell true elements, but also just in terms of trusting others and trusting a supreme sovereign power to govern justice in this particular case. And that's a very hard thing to do because I can tell you that even as a Christian, there have been things that I have been bothered by. And that I've even in my prayer time will say to God, I'm like, I don't understand why this particular thing is happening. I don't understand right. why this particular thing is taking so long. I don't understand why you're allowing the enemy or the the right. opposing person to get away with this. Yeah, and, and, it's okay. yep. and it's okay to be honest in my relationship with God. It's okay to be honest because he already knows. So me not telling him something that he already knows is kind of dumb. It's like, okay, I might as well say it because I know you already know I what's hear in you. my heart, and yeah. so I I have that type of a relationship with the Lord, and my family and I have have had to really cling on, almost like you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, with, white knuckles, with, right, with white We're hanging on the precipice because, of the cliff, yeah. yeah, because you have nothing else, honestly, you have nothing else, and in this particular season where we didn't know where you know where money was going to come from, my wife and I for uh, many years. Or without health insurance. So it's like, God just, keep us, yeah, yeah. just keep us healthy. Yeah. Just keep us healthy. Cause you know, you never know. You go to the doctor, you get a, a diagnosis, and many my wife has gets her annual mammograms and checkups, and every time that we go, there's a, a bit of apprehension. It's like, okay, are we gonna get really bad news? And right. so all of those things are committed to, you know, our faith and praying that God is gonna keep us healthy, God's gonna keep us Fed and, and if you look at my waistline, he's clearly done that. I mean, so, <laughs> so we've we've been able to not miss a meal. We've been able to keep a roof over our heads despite the circumstances, and that's I won't um, skim on saying. Well, that's because of how smart I am or whatever. No, that's all God. I mean, he's yeah. he's been he's been the provider and he's been the sustainer in this entire season, and I really had to to give him the acknowledgement in this book not as a uh, as a proselytizing effort but right. really just to be completely candid with the readers to say this is this is who, who I, am. I am and this is right. what has really been the foundation of of us getting through this process that we're still going through
0: Yeah. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to give you an opportunity. You know, there's a lot of talk about DEI and stuff in society nowadays, but I'm not sure it's all, I think it's selective DEI because a lot of times when a Christian wants to talk or wants to talk about their faith, there's a, there's a recoil. We can't have that conversation. It's taboo almost. And, and so I wanted to give you an opportunity and, you know, uh, in our pre-interview conversation we had this past weekend, uh, you told me, hey, Joe, I asked you if there's anything that's off topic. If you didn't want to talk about anything, you said, hey, I'm an open book where we can talk about anything you want. I'm going to hit you with a question that I didn't ask you during the pre-interview. But you know I've talked about it during the negotiation episode and episode two of this podcast and our, our spouses and the impact that this profession can have on our relationships and even divorce. You have been drugged through the mud through this uh, ordeal and you have lost your livelihood right? Mm -hmm. You've lost your identity as a, your career identity. Uh, It's basically been an attack on you as a man, you know, providing for you, your family Uh, you've had to move in with your children and consolidate your family expenses to to get by. And your wife has been a very strong uh, rock in this entire time for you. But I'm wondering, have you guys did you guys ever struggle with your marriage and have talks about getting divorced or anything like that? Or were you guys not, just rock solid this entire time?
1: Not even man. Um, and that's also a testimony to our faith system because there are many times that during this ordeal that what I was going through, my wife and my children really didn't understand the psyche. You know, I would retreat in many cases to solitary places. I mean, I, I write about um, taking on being an Uber driver. Sometimes it was really just to get away because I just right. needed to be alone. And yep. even though I had passengers in the back seat, you know, they're doing their thing and I'm just driving. I was like numbless, just being away. And, and my wife would be like texting me. "Is like, when are you coming back? You know, I, I, you need to be here. And so we would have disagreements because there were things that she wanted me to share that I just didn't know how to articulate. And she felt like I was shutting um, her and and the kids out. And it wasn't that I was intentionally shutting them out. I just didn't know how to really verbalize the emotion, the the various levels and complexities, because I just didn't know what I was feeling. But separation or divorce or anything like that was never a case. In fact, it made us grow even stronger together. We purposed to begin something that we would do when we were newlyweds. We would pray every night before uh, going to bed together. So we we reinstituted that. And so since that, we've been praying every night, just thanking God for another day that He allowed us to get through, right? Like, okay, we weren't evicted. (laughs) We still had food in the fridge. You know, there's still gas in the car. I mean, we made a lot of financial adjustments as a consequence of everything that had happened. But through it all, our relationship, not just as husband and wife, but as a family of four, you know, we've got two adult daughters who have been, I mean, I cannot underscore how champions, how much of champions those two girls have been. They have essentially said, okay, dad, you lost your your job. We're going to pool our resources. They could have easily said, look, you lost your job, sucks for you, but I got a life to live, right? They could right. have easily right. done that, and and no one would have faulted them. But they have said, we're going to pull through this together. You've always been there for us, and now it's our turn to help you guys out. And to this day, they continue to be such amazing women of God that their relationship with God has also been tested, but they've also had a resolve to say, we're going to get through this together. So never has there been a, a conversation about separation or breakup of the family. In fact, I think we have bonded together so much so that it's almost like an unhealthy it's yeah. an unhealthy bond <laughs> because it's almost like if if you know, well, you're all uh, you've had. You're all you've we're had. A we're a vault, and and so now the girls' joke is like, okay, if I meet a guy now, it's like, um, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if you're gonna be able to, I don't know if you're gonna be able to make it, you know, in this <laughs> nucleus that we have, because you you got to really be able to to tap into what we each share, because we all have different roles and we all have a unique perspective, and it's just been a, a tremendous stability, um, in addition to our faith. The, the nucleus of our family has been a tremendous stability. And I can tell you that I wouldn't have made it. I would have been, you know, literally on the funny farm or, or eaten out of, you know, like one of my attorneys said, you know, people eat out of trash bags for less than what you've gone through. So yeah. the fact that we've been together, we've been able to maintain or, or regain a sense of humor has been, you know, just a, a testament to our faith, but also just the, the strength of our family resolve.
0: Well, you know, reading your book, I could tell that these women in your life are just beautiful women. They've been very uh, strong and supportive of what you're doing. And I just, your wife just sounds like a special person. I know you talk a little bit about how she gets her strength from her relationship with God. And I'm not trying to turn this into a sermon or anything like that, but I think it's important that the audience understands that when you get dragged through something like this, that that turns your life literally upside down, that you have your faith to fall back on. What I'm trying to guess, I'm kind of convey is, it's important for individuals to have that faith in something or outside of them. I think whatever that is to help get them through the hard times because there's going to be hard times in this profession, this business. And I'm glad you had that to get through. Um, I want to I want to pivot a little bit back to your situation because so the, the election happens in November of 2016, and this is where things get a really kind of confusing to me. So the election's like November 8th or something like that. Right. And then the new council members who got elected, the new one and the and the one who got reelected, they got basically seated or sworn in before the election was even certified and they're, and they're firing you before you're even certified before they're even certified. I don't even understand how that legally was allowed to happen. Can you, was this a part of your actual case that your wrongful termination case? I mean, how legally was that even allowed to, I'm just so confused by that part of the story. (laughs) So can you explain to the reader or to the listeners how somebody who is elected to office and before the election's even certified, they can vote to fire you? What well, happened
1: there? It, it's really the simple way of putting it is in a local body governance, you have what's called the charter, which is what is the equivalent of the constitution of that governing body, and how they do business. and And, and some charters are very explicit; some charters are very you know limited in terms of the detail that they provide. Suffice it to say that the city of Hallandale Beach in November of 2016 broke a lot of rules. They they did things that were outside of the charter, outside of their own policies, outside of just even past behavior. They They just had an intention, and it was clearly an intention to retaliate against Lynn Whitfield and myself, the two individuals, Lynn's investigation that she launched and my testimony in that investigation. Once the power shifted there, it was all hands on deck to really try to get this thing done immediately. It was almost like this insatiable desire to get back at us as soon as they possibly could without even waiting the proper length of time to go through the proper you know, channels and make sure that nothing would be um, above reproach or outside of the, the charter and the policies of the city.
0: That that's something that always trips me out about this, Daniel. Because i've I've written about numerous city managers who've gotten fired over the last year on my LinkedIn page, and one of the reoccurring themes is like, "Dude, if you want to fire us, you can fire us. We, we're big boys and girls. We know how to take it. There's it's it's not hard. Just fire us the right way." Right. And it's like I it's like it's so many of these uh, elected officials. They want to violate the law or they want to speed things up by even just a few days. When if they would just wait and do things with a natural uh, rule of law or where the process is, they would protect them and the city from being sued, you know, in in many ways. But but let
1: me me, me just say this, and and this is something that I talk about in the book. The reason why they do that, Joe, is because they can. Yes, power, right? (laughs) Well, it's not just power, (laughs) but there's no consequence. True. True. There's, no, You're there's right. no personal You're right. consequence to them. So you could be an elected official, as was the case in the city of Hallandale Beach. You could be an elected official that says, okay, I'm going to violate the law. I'm going to pay for attorneys to, to protect us. And it doesn't matter because I can never be personally sued. And at the end of the day, the legal fees and whatever outcome is never going to come out of my personal pocket. The taxpayers are going to bear the, the brunt of that. So that's, right. that's the reason why they do it. Because and, you if ta- you were- and you
0: do talk about that in your book. You talk about, it's called absolute immunity and I'm going to let you expand on that in a second. Okay. Because yep. I did write down a passage from your book on page 19 and you basically you're talking about absolute immunity and the idea that elected officials can essentially get away with figuratively speaking murder. Mm-hmm. And it, you, and you write, What if the elected official does not go about their duties in an honest manner? Instead, what if for political purposes, the official carries out their duties in a reckless manner by making knowingly false and disparaging remarks that dramatically affect an administrator's ability to perform their duties and earn a living? More profoundly, how does this absolute immunity impact the overall public and the sound, efficient delivery of government services? Mm -hmm. And so why don't you speak a little bit about, uh, if you could uh, briefly about what absolute immunity is, because you're just sort of, we just brought the conversation right into that, that domain.
1: Yeah, this is a designation by the Supreme Court and I'm, and I'm overly simplifying it just for, for purposes of, of our listening audience, but it's, it's a designation by the Supreme Court that says that individual in elected capacity is immune from being sued for activities that they perform in that capacity. You could take a president, you could take a mayor, you could take a governor. And in that capacity, they can say, Joe Turner is XYZ. And it doesn't matter. Joe Turner can never sue that individual elected person, because they are immune from that lawsuit. It is a protected designation by the Supreme Court. Why is that? Because as we we write about, it's it's really intended to encourage people to get into the elected profession that they would not have to be subjected to any kind of lawsuit. Well, but what
0: well I guess it's so I think I kind of put a finer point on that. It's so elected officials don't have to fear being sued left and right by every Tom, Dick and Harry out there just because they opened their mouth or they said something that was, you know, unpopular, right? And I I think we both agree that there's some legitimacy to that. We understand why that exists. But to the larger point is when you have elected officials who are knowingly, blatantly behaving with such disregard, there's still no consequences for them.
1: And that is correct. That's the problem. That's and that's why and that's why they do it as, as right. the, the many of the posts and the articles that you've covered they do it because they can they do it because there's never going to be a hit to their pocketbook right you know you could you yep. could if if you knew that you could drive 100 miles an hour and never get a ticket you would drive 100 miles an hour and never get a ticket Right. But if you knew, if you if you've got your 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 GPS, right, and you knew and and the voice comes on and says, Hey, there's a speed check ahead, you're gonna slow down. Or if you see a state trooper, you're gonna slow down. Why? Because right. you don't wanna get hit by that two hundred dollar speeding ticket. Amen. So that's what happens if you if you don't if you don't fear a consequence, then your behavior just continues to become more and more reckless. And so that's why this happens to the city managers in this profession, because we are governed by individuals who are protected by this designation, who don't ever have to fear not just being sued, but having to personally pay back.
0: Yeah, and this kind of leads into another passage in your book later on on page 83. The question we must ask ourselves as a progressive society is, do we want Professional managers who are more concerned with keeping their jobs rather than ensuring a nonpartisan and ethically run organization. Right. right. And so when you compound this immunity process, this getting away with whatever you want to do for an elected official, what it really does is it degrades the ability for individuals to provide competent, ethical, independent leadership in the organization and taken to its logical conclusion you're just going to go into a banana republic style corruption the graft and the nepotism all that stuff that goes on with it because there's nothing that's going to protect the city manager in those environments right because you're just a sitting duck
1: and then you add to that let's assume that that manager is 2 months shy of getting their review and there an extension on their employment contract maybe that manager is two years away from retirement. And they're like, okay, I just need another two years to be able to retire and be done. Right. But now all of a sudden this egregious behavior is evidenced and that person is left or is confronted with a choice of, do I speak up and risk my ex- my contract extension and right. forfeit my potential retirement? Or do I stay quiet and just like let it go because yeah. I'm just really focused on what's in it for me? And that's the dilemma. And and what what I wanted to talk about is that when you find yourself or when we find ourselves in municipal or public administration roles, what ends up happening is that we are diluting or watering down good governance because now everybody's in for themselves. It's like right. now you're thinking, okay, I'm not going to say anything because I've got two kids in college or I've got a second mortgage that I got to pay off or I've got a disabled elderly parent that I have to take care of. I cannot risk speaking up and doing what I know is morally and ethically right because I'm going to put at risk everything that I'm responsible for. And that's a bigger question that we have to ask ourselves because now you are saying to those individuals who should say something, the ones who have access to all of this information that the general public doesn't see, Look away and saying, well, you know what, I'm just going to let that go because <laughs> there's too much at risk for well, me. You know, th-
0: th- I wasn't planning on going to this part of the conversation, but we're just kind of naturally going there now. There's an art. There's a section in your book. where you talk about the dance of diplomacy. I believe I, I don't yep. have it in my notes here. But you talk about some of the nuances of being a manager and, you know, when do you put your foot down? When do you throw the red flag up on a certain behavior? When do you let things slide to grease the wheels, right? And there's levels to this game of being a city manager. There's things that, you know, I I just recently posted about it on my own LinkedIn platform. There's things that you don't get taught in MPA school and there's things that they can't teach you in MPA school, (laughs) right brother? Unless you actually walked in those shoes. Right. And there's a lot of challenges. So it's like, you know, it was really fascinating. I, just that chapter that section on the dance of diplomacy and those nuances of being a city manager. And, you know, when do you call out, certain things versus let it slide. Because you talk about like, yeah, I can't call out everything. If I called out everything, I'd be dismissed. There's, I can't get anything done. I can't, I can't work with this governing body. Right. And, and, and 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 you, and
1: you'd get the reputation of being somebody who does that. Then the recruiters label you as the person who calls out everything and they're never going to advance your resume to the next job. So that dance is not just within that organization that you're in. It's, it's thinking about the next organization that you might be in.
0: I want to do a little quick kind of detour, but related. I'm not a fan, and I've talked about this before, I'm not a fan of the Florida severance cap of 20 weeks. Illinois has a 20-week severance cap for city managers. New Jersey, I think, has a 12-week. I really think that by limiting and capping those severance uh, payouts, you actually put the balance of power too much into the hands of the elected officials, and that leads to poor governance. That leads to uh, uh, less effective city managers who are gonna be less principled because 20 weeks doesn't pay the bills nowadays man when you got a house that costs you four or five hundred thousand dollars uh you're, you're paying six percent to sell that house to move someplace or whatnot. what are your thoughts on the cap and its impact on the cap on severance and it's how it impacts a manager's ability to be independent ethical and a, a strong leader what are your thoughts on that
1: you you hit it man it's 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 a penance and it really just impedes the manager's ability to to have negotiation leverage on their side. And when I say negotiation leverage, I mean you have issues that come up. You're thinking, all right, if this blows up in my face, I've only got 20 weeks and it, and that may not be enough. So it puts all of the the leverage on the part of the governing body and very little on the part of the city manager who's left out to dry. It really doesn't represent the cost of transitioning from one position to the next and it's really just something that needs to be there's a, there's a lot of things that this journey caused me to to really reflect and uncover and that was part of the the other motivation in writing the book and that is there's so many elements to this profession that not only impact the individuals in the profession, but impact everybody else. And I just believe that you really have to throw it all away and start really from a from a basis of what makes sense in this day and age and in this economy. Right. And and so I think that, for instance, managers should be given, you know, kind of like you know, head coaches is like, okay,
0: guarantee contract. I, I got a
1: guarantee contract for three yeah. years, and and these yeah. are the these are the objectives that you want me to reach. And if for whatever political reasons you don't want me to stay and a year into the, into the contract, you're going to pay me out my, my other two years. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and you're, you know, you you bring that up, and I, I'm I'm with you. And you know, it's interesting because we have different schools of thought, even with the, amongst our peers, right? Anyone who's read my content, they know that I'm pretty hard on being aggressive negotiators uh, for getting what's due us as far as for the risk that we take. I think there's been a paradigm shift in the in the industry over the last couple of years, and and people aren't catching up to the increase in the risk profile. That the, the compensation hasn't hasn't risen to adjust and compensate for that risk that we're taking on. And I would say this, you know, there has to be some sting when it comes to firing a city manager, right? If there's no sting, then you just churn through them. It's just churn and burn, churn and burn. And it leads to very poor governance. And, you know, we talk about the volatility and risk profile of this industry has increased over the last several years. Well, the way you get that volatility and the risk profile to decrease, to go down is by increasing that sting and by making it more difficult to get rid of managers, right? I mean, they say hiring a city manager is often the most important job of a city council or commission. If it's so damn important, then how about you spend more time than an hour interview going through making that process, and then just deciding six months or a year later you want to toss that person to the curb and move on to someone
1: else? You know, I, and, and, I think and how about and how about I don't mean to cut you off, but no, no please, how, how about you also reevaluate the executive recruiter that you're going to use for that purpose to make sure that that recruiter is not at the behest of your, you know, individual whims, and that recruiter is just, you know, pandering to what that particular elected official may want. It's like, okay, if this is the most important thing, and you're representing your constituency, how about really doing it professionally, ethically, ethically and, and comprehensively, as opposed to saying, okay, you want somebody who's six feet tall with, you know, blonde hair and blue eyes, right. or I want somebody who looks like me, because that's a representation of the demographic. When those Characteristics or components should never really be factored in. What ends up happening is that you have this dysfunctional process right. amongst people who, by the way, many of which are not trained in human resources or evaluation of performance or anything like that. True. So it's just yeah. a it's just a, a you know what show. <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, and, I, and I, I'm so glad you said that because uh, a rant that I've been going on, and in fact. I'm recording this after I just recorded my episode yesterday. that's going to go out on Wednesday. I know it's a little confusing, but uh, the next episode before this one that's going to be published is actually about holding uh, the executive recruiters accountable. Who's holding them accountable? But it's like the way you decrease the volatility in the profession is by paying us what we're worth, right? The value that we bring to the organization. And I think there's got to be some sting to it. So I didn't want to get off on a little sidetrack on that. It's just something that's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, Daniel, but I'll move on to now to the, to back to your story. So the new council members, they get seated at the end end of November and they vote to terminate you because you're the city manager required to hold a hearing in order to basically confirm the termination, right? So you're, right. you're voted to be terminated in late November. And then Keith London, mayor London decides he's going to hold it right in between Christmas and new years when he knows that you and your, uh, I think your attorney was even going to be out. No, the mayor is going to be out of town. You're going to be out of town on vacation. I think your mayor even had plan or your attorney had plans uh, and had to change him or something like that. So he decides to hold this hearing, and it's basically a Mickey Mouse sham trial. You know, you can't even present witnesses or anything like that. Can you walk us through that experience and, and what have you?
1: Yeah, man. Um, again, they they violated every single rule that the city had established. If you think about it, why would you, as a as a as a city government or municipal government, why would you have such an important decision? unless it was something that like the person had died or the person had been arrested or something that was an emergency situation, why would it be so urgent that you would have such an important decision to happen around the time of year when most of the time, either people kind of are on recess or things not, are a little bit late. They're not, engaged. They're they're not, not engaged. engaged. yeah, and, and neither is the public, by the way. Yeah. So it tells you something about the motivation behind this particular thing. So yes, my attorney was going to be out of the country. He asked for an extension to be able to do it. I think it was January 4th. Doing it at that time would have been within the parameters allowed by charter. But this vice mayor, he was like, no, we're going to do it again. The meeting on the 29th of November was before the individuals had been uh, certified the new commissioners had been certified by the Broward uh, County Elections Clerk, and then they held the hearing. And I had to get new attorneys up to speed so that they could go and have the hearing, which was a, a sham court. They they didn't allow us to question the commission. They didn't allow us to call witnesses. All we could do was a, a pretty much a, akin to a presentation that a developer would give. It's like, okay, here's here's what you're accusing this man of, and here are the facts that refute it. And those things were there. In fact, one of the few people that were in the audience, which was someone who was a kind of a supporter of this particular commissioner, after hearing the presentation by my attorney said, you guys ought to really rethink this because you're going to end up paying a lot of money to this man just because of you know the stupidity. He didn't use that word, but the, right. the, the stupidity of what he was being accused of. It was a surreal experience, Joe, because it was laughable, but at the same time, it was so real that it became one of those things that I just couldn't believe it was happening. There was no truth to any of it, and the way that the, the city went about it, it was completely retaliatory in nature. And and like I said, you know, if you had been somebody who really wanted to get at somebody, you could do it in a in a much more methodical way. But it, it speaks to the, the nature of the individual at, at the root of it all. He just couldn't help himself. He couldn't so, help himself.
0: So you know, there was a part in the book where you talk about how uh, Mayor London calls you into his office, right? And you're like, "Man, what does this guy want to talk to me about?" And you guys end up having. This is before you get terminated. The book to terminate you, and basically, you're told like, "Hey, your 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 time's done here," and you were under this expectation or belief that you were going to be terminated uh, without cause, and you'd collect your severance and you'd move on, right? We had it. We
1: had, a, we had a, a a separation agreement. My attorney at the time drafted a separation agreement, and and the separation agreement was a two page. It was very Cut and dry. Simple. It's cut and dry. It's like, okay, this is what his employment agreement is. If the city decides that they want to terminate this individual, we're, we're done. It's a real simple thing.
0: So I've always been confused by that section of the book because was that just – what changed between that conversation and the actual vote to terminate you with cause, which, you've, which you know, rocked you to your core – Uh, Did you think London was the entire time going to do a bait and switch or do you think just something happened? Like, what do you think happened there? Because why have that conversation with you if you're just going to fire you with cause?
1: I I think when you look at the personality type, it was really one of those wanting to have me let my guard down and almost and, and, and just punish me to just demonstrate that he had all of the power to be able yeah. to do that because nothing really happened. There was nothing that occurred in between or behind the scenes. It was really just him wanting us to come in almost unprepared in that meeting to then have it. And and in that meeting on that November 29th, he he said on the record, if you resign, then we won't proceed. But by resigning, he had already said, these are the things that I'm being accused of. Right. And if I resigned, I'd have to forfeit my severance package so it's like no dude i'm not doing that because i'm not going to admit to something that i i did not do and then he proceeded with the full-on we're going to fire you with cause so it was a complete bait and switch
0: now, I probably should have mentioned this earlier in the uh, podcast. I'm still a rookie when it comes to interviewing guests, so I apologize. But you know, we should probably go over the three accusations that were made against you by London. Can you walk us through real quick, for the benefit of the audience, what these uh, egregious violations were yeah. uh, that you were supposedly guilty of in order to fire you with cause and go down this whole you know lengthy road of
1: litigation? Yeah, the three stated reasons. The first was a, a P-card purchase on... An airline ticket, and it was the context was not provided to the audience when the allegation was made. This was a um, the actual conference in Seattle that I alluded to earlier in, in the show that I had a conversation with Mayor Cooper about taking on the the role. I wasn't even the manager at the time; I was a deputy. So I was going to an I C M A conference of all places, okay. and, <laughs> and it, because it was Seattle. Um, I originally invited my wife and she says, look, it's too long. I don't want to go. Um, and I said to my oldest daughter, who's a foodie like me, I said, Hey, I'm going to Seattle, all these places on the food network that you've been wanting to go to are in Seattle. You want to, you want to tag along. She's like, I'm there, but she goes, but I'm paying my own way. And I said, no problem. I'll hold you to that. So when I'm booking the ticket, We were using, we had been encouraged to use a P-card for all of our transactions. So I book, I always have booked my own travel because I like to be able to dictate when I fly, what what time I take off. So I I wanted to make sure we were both sitting together. So- I bought both of our tickets. I did my expense report and I told Renee at the time I said, hey, I'm taking my daughter. And she's like, you know, fine, no problem. Just, and I said, I'm going to reimburse it. Yeah, fact, there was, she's nothing, gonna reimburse there was
0: it. nothing surreptitious about this. There's nothing nefarious. Nothing. You, they make nothing. it sound like you're trying to sneak something through or, or bilk the city for, you know, taxpayer funds for personal expenses. That's all bogus. Not right? only
1: that, man, At when I came back, when I had to fill out my expense report, attached to my ex- expense report is the check for not just my daughter's ticket, but also also, a room service meal that she had ordered when I was at the conference, it was $43. Now, I could have easily said, yeah, that was a meal that I bought, but because of who I am as a person, right. it's like, no, this was a meal that my daughter had ordered while I was away at the conference. So the amount of the check was for that, um, a portion of the the um, ground transportation and the, and the ticket. So we repaid it. I repaid it the day after I returned from the, the conference. So that was... Reason number one. The second reason was um, there was a developer who happened to have the same name as an executive oh, that's recruiter. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How ridiculous. So, okay. Yeah. All right. it was, and, okay. and it was and it was almost you know really disparaging because it was a Hispanic last name, and so we had hired uh, the city had been having trouble hiring a finance director, so we I engaged a executive recruiter specify um, specifically targeting that industry. But the contract was for both the finance director, and then we used that person to also hire a CRA finance person, a community redevelopment agency finance person. And in the purchase order, we split the cost of the contract or the recruitment so that it would not exceed my purchasing authority. So that was the second reason. All this was was provided as part of our attorney's presentation. The third thing was the developer who had given a check for the CRA board had made a determination that any developer would have to give a pre-application deposit almost to prove their intention and their financial wherewithal when submitting a development application to the CRA board. So that check submitted by a developer, Commissioner London said that I held the check for 10 weeks. You know, the fact is, I was not even the person. Daniel,
0: you don't go to the bank every day, right? You're not dropping off the hound (laughs) up.
1: I was like, I don't even I don't even receive the mail correspondence that comes in, let alone deposit checks. But anyway, right. this person fa- That's why your reaction is exactly the reaction when those stated reasons were mentioned initially. I laughed because I was like, Are I, you I'm, serious? I'm, I'm yeah. getting punked, right? This is like Ashton Kutcher walking through the door with the cameras at <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm getting punked. I'm like, no, this this can't be real life right now. So Anyway, that was, those are the three stated reasons that were debunked in the presentation. But because the commissioner had his two allies that they were going to go through it, they went ahead and voted to terminate me with cause, even though they never read the information. They, according to London's own statements, they never researched it. They didn't do anything. They just went went along with whatever he said as the stated reasons.
0: Yeah, I, I, I thought it was funny. You noted in the uh, in the book about how Lazaro Lazaro always complained about not getting the documentation yeah. time, and yet this time she didn't have any complaints. And then you had uh I forget her whole name. Tob T A B. Annabelle
1: Annabelle Lima Tob.
0: Tob, yeah. How she uh, had just got seated the day that day, basically. So how did she have any background information or you know anything about? How did she have a uh, enough information to make a decision on your termination? Right? She didn't. Um, but anyway, so that kind of brings us up to where you, the whole thing happens, right? So then they have this, you know, sham hearing. They uphold the termination, and then shortly thereafter, you're in the process of, you know, take them to court, and that's where yeah, basically fighting, you start my to, complaint. Yeah, you file. This goes on a seven year saga or whatnot. And you know, there was an interesting aspect to your book about the that sequence of events, and it's something that I think is a very important lesson that city managers who are listening to this conversation need to take to heart. Um, But you talked about how it was a fortuitous that you had been talking to your counsel who was representing you at the hearing about maybe being prepared for uh, litigation or something like that. And I think what's important about this discussion is that a lot of city managers, they find themselves in a situation where they're being fired or they're under the gun, and then they're scrambling to find legal representation uh, under the gun, right? And they're facing time limits or deadlines and things like that. I think it's very important that city managers be more proactive in having those uh, be preemptive and having those sort of uh, resources and those professionals in their corner lined up before things go bad. Right. Like we need to be more prepared in our you know, we would never allow our city or we would never want our city to be in a reactionary sort of like, you know. Uh, situation, whether it's a disaster or something like that. right? We, we want to pride ourselves on being preemptive, proactive, but I don't think a lot of us do that when it comes to our own careers and protecting our reputations and our profession. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I do. In fact, one of your podcasts talked about, and, and one of the mantras of of this podcast, City Manager Unfiltered, is is to really help managers or prospective managers really not only not not only nail their their interviews but really maximize their employment contract. So to your point, I never had an attorney review my employment agreement. My employment agreement was essentially the same employment agreement that Renee had with right. just a name change and and the salary change. But Thinking back, I probably should have looked at it and said, Hey, let me get an attorney, my own private attorney, to review it, to do a little bit of research on the city and maybe add elements that would be a protection to me. It's almost akin to a prenuptial agreement, right? It's like, Absolutely. okay, even though I, we're not, I talked about that podcast. Yeah. It's yeah. like we're not planning on divorcing, but in the event that we do, I'm getting the house. Like that type yes. of that type of um, you know preemptive strategy. And as managers, those of us who have been committed to the profession, we never really think self-preservation mode. We're always thinking: yes. How do I preserve the public good? How do I do what's in the best interests of the constituency and of the city that I'm charged to lead? Oh, and the and, last and even what we staff, think about.
0: And it, well, yeah, and also our staff, right? Every, that's that's the that's the crux of the city manager problem right now. Is that? And I'm not trying to make it sound like we're these noble, you know, saints or anything like that. But I mean, as city managers, we're geared mentally towards putting everything and everyone else, the organization, staff ahead of ourselves. Correct. Right? Uh, we take the blame whenever it's not our fault because the buck stops with us. It's you know right. we're not going to throw a subordinate under uh, under the bus or something in a public meeting because that looks like crap too, right? We're damned if we do, damned if we don't and we seldom ever get credit because right. it goes to the elected officials or right. to the subordinates. Right. Cause I right. mean, you know, you know what I mean? So it's like, we have this mentality of like, you know, we're public servants and we we're not in this for the money. It's like, we, I'm not saying that we need to have a, a me, me, me. And it's all about me selfish, you know, get everything I can mindset, but there needs to be some balance in this equation, right? We do need to spend some time and understand, Hey, we got to protect our self-interest, our family. We got to put ourselves in the best position to succeed, right. Mm-hmm. By having strong confidence. Contracts by having these protections, these protections and these, you know, have an attorney look at your contracts. Those are all designed, not just to protect you in the event that things go bad, but to also ensure good, strong governance, because there is a healthy check and balance in the system between the manager and the organization. And I think we're losing sight of that.
1: Absolutely. And, and we're losing sight of the vulnerable climate, and environment that we're going into. And and in many cases, we always think going into that role as I did, when we talked about this earlier, it was a 3-2 vote and it was a contentious thing. I went into it thinking, I'm so committed and I'm going to work my butt off that we're going to turn the corner and I'm going to get them to see how how wise of a choice it was. Right, I, I, I wasn't thinking defensively and I should yes. have been thinking defensively. I should have been thinking Okay, regardless of how good you are or you believe that you are Roseman, the reality is even if you are, even if you can literally walk on water and not get your feet wet, you are still gonna be vulnerable and yes. and and in a in an environment that potentially could land you in the unemployment line. And so I should have been much more proactive when it came to getting an attorney up front and, and renegotiating a contract that was that had much more teeth in it.
0: That's such a great comment that you just made because it segues into a question that I had, and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to fit it in. So, on page 104 of your book, you have an interesting passage that really resonated with me because it basically asked a very important question about the long term success of a city manager. And I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the exact uh, line here. But you said something like, Is getting real substantive results more important or the manner in which you do those things as a city manager? Because Mm -hmm. What you just hit right now on is something I've suffered from, and, and that is, hey, I consider myself to be an elite individual. I think I'm very intelligent. I think I'm very savvy. I think I can add a lot of value to an organization. I know I add value to an organization, but I've learned in my short career that oftentimes, especially with the political, political dynamics and how council members are influenced by residents and other stakeholder groups in their community, Sometimes it does not matter how strong the results you are. What's more important is whether or not not you pissed off a specific person or whether or not people like you or they think Mm -hmm. that you're approachable or whatnot, right? I think a lot of times we as managers, we we have this myopic sort of short-sighted tunnel vision view of like, oh, if I get results or maybe I'm speaking for myself and I'm projecting here. If I get results here, I'm safe. I'm good. I'm golden. But that's not the case, Ram. Because no. you can get fired in this business, even if you're an excellent city manager who gets the job done. I've seen countless uh, city managers who get fired within months. I mean, months of having an excellent annual review. What happened? What happened? A, an ele- election happened. That's what happened. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's
1: like, or or you you didn't return a phone call or answer a call yes. when some you know very needy elected official you know, expected you to be at their behest 24-7. It's like they had a pet issue and they wanted you on the phone and you were either spending time with your family or, you know, attending a kid's ball game. Whatever the case may be, you just couldn't answer the call. I've experienced some elected officials, not in Hallandale, other cities where... They expected you to be available whenever they wanted you to be available. Right. It's almost like your you're life the, and you don't have any. Yep. That's what happens sometimes. And so even though you're getting results, guess what? You didn't answer the call, or maybe you had to speak to them sternly, or maybe you had to say no. And all of a sudden now it's like, well, you know what? I, I've lost confidence in Joe Turner.
0: And you know what I find right? very <laughs> frustrating? You know what I find very <laughs> frustrating about that, Daniel? Is because then what happens is the the more savvy per se uh, managers which i would put myself maybe i'm not in that category the more savvy managers then become more focused on the pr sort of social interpersonal dynamic relationship bs than actually getting the job done right there you because go, they man. know that and, and so it, it just degrades the quality of leadership because it's they know that hey, I need, in order to protect myself, I got to make sure I'm taking care of this council member's needs and their wants and, and everything else, or I'm taking care of this stakeholder group, and it doesn't become about what's best for the community as a whole. Right? Yeah. And you get sacrificed. It's I mean, there's levels to this game. There's levels to this game.
1: And that's why I use the the sports analogy, because in, in sports, depending on, you know, I don't, I don't know if you're a golfer, but if and, and the listeners may be familiar with this name, Jim Furyk, as a professional golfer, had one of the ugliest golf swings I've ever seen. But you know what? The guy was a solid PGA Tour professional. I don't know how many how many tournaments he won, but, but the guy was always in the top 25 of that pro- very competitive profession. And he had a very ugly golf swing. It's not one of those swings that you would say, emulate this guy's swing. But guess what? The results are what matters. And that's what I talk about here is that in sports, you could have ugly me- mechanics, but if you get the results, you're going to be in the lineup. You're going to be in the game. You're going to get the endorsements because people are looking for the results in this particular profession in in the city manager profession. It really, the results are important. Yes. But sometimes it's the, you know, the non tangible things, you know, it's the approachableness or how you are schmoozing your elected body and, and making them feel like, okay, commissioner, you know, we'll, we'll do it your way. It's like, you have to almost compromise your own disposition or your own management style to be able to keep your job. And that's, that's a real thing that a lot of people either don't talk about or are not aware of because they've never been in the environment where they've had to do that. Yeah.
0: So true. And, you know, let's talk about some results real quick that you've had, right? Because I don't want to paint this whole doom and gloom and woe is us and don't be into the profession, right? we it's a challenging profession, right? But we're all in this business for a reason. And I, I know one of the reasons I'm in this business is because I want to deliver results that have a meaningful impact on people. That's why I'm in this business. You know, you had an interesting time uh, situation, a very uh, accomplishment you're very proud of. That I wanted to focus on this because honestly, this was my favorite line in the book. And you were working in Miami Gardens. You were in the community development, director of community development, or something like that. Right. And you, were, this is out of the Great Recession. You were working on the neighborhood stabilization program and spinning down funds. And there was a section in there where you talked about that work. Could you could you briefly summarize? what you did there, because you were very proud of what you accomplished there. And I wanted to highlight something that was very important to me when I read your book.
1: Yeah, I'm still still very proud of that uh, accomplishment. So the uh, Neighborhood Stabilization Program um, was part of the Housing and Economic Recovery Act um, that was signed into law in 2009. And Miami Gardens at the time or continues to be an entitlement city for listeners that don't know what that means. Those are cities that reach a certain Threshold of population and who are eligible to receive funds from the federal government for community and economic development efforts. So we had received the city of Miami Gardens had received neighborhood stabilization program dollars, and we were the first city in the entire country to purchase, rehabilitate, and sell a abandoned foreclosed property to an income eligible first time homebuyer, and 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 that. Uh, accomplishment was celebrated by the Secretary of HUD at the time, Sean Donovan, through a press conference. And it was, I didn't realize how big of a deal it was until after the fact. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I can't yeah. believe that. You know, when when somebody says, you know, you're the first of anything, and I didn't realize that none of the other entitlements in, in all of the entire country had, had gotten to that point. Um, I remember Secretary Donovan at the time, time saying, we've got, you know, off camera, he says, we've got entitlements who have not even spent down $1 of of the, right. you know, NSP dollars. And here you guys have actually already sold the unit. And I I literally was just floored by what we had accomplished. And I say we, because it was a collective effort. We had a staff of three people, but we had an extended team of realtors, of contractors, of other professionals that we had Engaged and leveraged on top of all of the networking within the departments in the city to make sure that, hey, people's checks went out on time and that we had inspections done on a timely basis. So there was a lot of moving parts. So it was really one of those proud moments, not just because of what we had done, but at the moment, I was remembering the face of that single mom of two kids who was standing next to Secretary Donovan, knowing that that young those two young boys' lives were going to be forever changed because their mom was going to be a first-time homeowner. And, yeah. and that part was, was the part that really gave me goosebumps and still does to this day because I was part of something that changed the financial legacy of that family. Now, I don't know whatever happened with that, but, but to right. know that you had a part in, in changing the, the trajectory of that family's life financially and, and socioeconomically was was tremendous.
0: Can I tell you something, Daniel? I'm gonna read the. I'm gonna read my favorite line in your entire book, and I think it's gonna surprise a lot of people based off of what they see my content on LinkedIn and everything else. But this is literally my favorite line. It's related to the story. It's on uh, page 67. I didn't drive home from work that night. I simply drifted on cloud nine all the way to my doorstep. End quote. To me, that's that's it right there for me. Yeah. That's I've had a few of those moments. They're far and in between, unfortunately, in this profession. But I've had a few of those moments, Daniel. And that to me encapsulates why I'm in this business. I've never had, I've never read a line that really sort of like, just sort of encapsulated why I'm in this business. That was the line for me in your book. That's my favorite line, and wow. I, just, I just think that's amazing. I've had people, and rightfully and fairly, criticize me on LinkedIn, uh, constructively, not negatively, about you know my content maybe being too negative and whatnot. And I want to let people know, like, man. This is why we're in this business, I think, right, mm-hmm. to make these mm-hmm. impacts, to, to have that sense of accomplishment that you're making a better, that you're making an impact on the world, that you're making uh, an impact on an individual person's life, which is what we get to do at the local level. Like we literally get to, ta- we literally get to tackle a, a projects and ideas that impact people directly at the local level. And I think that's one of the coolest things about being a city manager.
1: You know, Joe, people don't get into this profession because you're going to be, you know, a Jeff Bezos type billionaire, right? You right. get into this profession because you want those moments to say, you know what? I joined your organization and this is where we were. And after three years, five years, however many years in the organization, you left it better than when you got there. And it could be a result in terms of what the community looks like in terms of, you know, the aesthetics, or it could be in terms of the strength of the, of the leadership within the organization that you've been able to cultivate or just the way that you now govern or are much more transparent or are able to make government much more accessible to the average resident who doesn't know how government works. Most people don't. And that is really those in, one of those intangible characteristics that I still have that within me in terms of people have asked me since I wrote the book. It's like, well, so are you saying that you'll never get back into local government? I'm like, I've learned never to say never. Right but I can tell you that the element of being able to do things for other people or the community around you is such a a magnet, and it's such a rewarding experience that it really is hard to put into words how it makes one feel when you know you've had a stake in in being able to do that. Sometimes it's a very visible thing, and sometimes it's a very you know small thing that maybe you and and one other person knows what it means yep. to that person but yeah. it's, it's just a very rewarding thing. And when you, when you lay your head at, on the pillow at night, you can feel good about what you did that day or, or what you've Amen. been doing up to that point.
0: Amen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're coming up on uh, the two hour mark here, uh, depending on how I edit this down. So I'm going to, I'm going to start wrapping this up now, Daniel, cause we've gone a long ways. I haven't got to all my questions that I wanted to ask you just about this section in part one, we still have an entire, a conversation to have about the actual lawsuit and the dynamics surrounding your lawsuit which we're going to get into but i wanted to i wanted to end this uh, first part of the podcast with an uplifting sort of uh note there you know i mean it, it's it, it's a tough business to be in and it's easy for us to lose sight of why we are in this business or for people who are sort of following along and maybe not in the profession to say, oh man, why would anyone ever get into this business? Well, I focus on a lot of the negative stuff because I know why I'm in the business, right? I want to make that difference and I want to make that impact on people's lives. Uh, But my focus, I feel uh, my calling right now is to help us as professionals be better professionals and protect us in in our workplace and so forth and so on. So um, I think some people get a little bit confused by the the quantity of the negative stories I put out on LinkedIn. And it's like, I, I haven't fallen out of love with the profession. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I love what we do. I love the impact we can have on individuals, but we need to have these tough conversations about how these things are impacting us as individuals, as people, how they're impacting our families. And we need to be more proactive in fighting for and advocating on behalf of ourselves as professionals, which I don't think we have right now in the current environment. So uh, we're going to wrap up with this interview. We're going to come back and uh, do a, a part two, and we're going to talk about the the lawsuit in more detail. Uh, Daniel, do you have any final uh, parting words or anything for this episode?
1: I would applaud, continue to applaud what you're doing, Joe, on this podcast, because it's it's absolutely necessary to, to your listeners and those that have been critical that you, you tend to take a slant on the profession that is um, somewhat negative. I would say to that, that there's enough of the other slant out there in terms of content. <laughs> and so this, you, you, don't, you don't need to hear more of the same. You need to hear a, a different side, the real side of this profession. And it's not intended to, to say that you or I are not proponents or supporters. Obviously, our body of work shows differently. But it's important that we speak up and we when things are not right, just like what we would do in our roles when things are not right, you need to uncover it, man. You need to address it. And that's what you're doing. So I applaud your efforts on this on this platform.
0: Thank you very much. Hey, Daniel, I've had an absolute blast with this uh, episode. I really thank you for your time. I thank you for being a voice. I thank you for, man, just... Uh, I thank you for sticking through it all, man, and getting through it, man. You've been through a lot, and I and I hope the readers they go and they check out your book. I know a lot of people have purchased it already and have told you that, man. They need to. We need to support our own, right? We need to support our own when they're going through these battles. And I hope uh, people will go out, and check out your book, and take a look at it. I hope you get put into the MPA curriculum, so forth and so on. Thank you so much for being on this episode. We're thank going you. to come back, and you're very welcome. We're going to come back and do a, another part two here in the very near future. And uh, until next time, I'm Joe Turner. I'm I'm the host of City Manager Unfiltered, a podcast by a city manager for city managers and other public sector executives. If you like this content, please rate and review uh, the podcast on the platform of your choice. Thank you very much. And until next time, see ya.